Welcome to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast, your podcast for system agnostic tabletop role-playing game discussion. This is Bruce. This is Trav. This is Dana. Hey guys, this is Jatan Noir. Welcome to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast, your podcast where you realize that there are things out there creeping around in the wild and in the current concrete jungle that really defy explanation, but we need to know what they are. Tonight we are talking about cryptozoology in role-playing games and other media. And we have with us a very special guest. This is someone I attended a seminar at PenguinCon three years ago. And it was about cryptozoology in North America. Shatan Noir, welcome to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hey! Hey! Now, you had mentioned, well, back then you were on, uh, please refresh my memory on the podcast you were doing back then. Yes, um, it's Into the Liminal Abyss Paranormal Podcast. Okay, now is that still going or is it still up for perusal? I do it, I don't do it year round. I do like a season of it. So like a, I'll do an eight week run. Um, and basically they're, my podcasts are interviews that I do while I'm at different paranormal events, cryptozoology events, where I'm actually talking to um, well-known people in the field and just getting their their insight and their input onto different things that are going on and different subjects that are coming up that, you know, people are taking notice of. And I do like a half an hour, 45 minute, you know, interview with them. And then it gets put on YouTube so um, people can watch it for free or listen to it for free. And um, then they can, you know, enjoy it. All right. Uh, how long have you been in this field? Oh, I would say at least 20 years. Oh, um, okay, good. My in- yeah, my interest started when I was 16, and I'm in my 40s now, so it's been a long time. <laughs> All right, then, then, then experience so, confirmed. So, you know, can you touch the doll where the bad crib, crib <laughs> got stimulated the interest that you had in it? Yeah, what, what brought you into this field of, of study? Oh, um, just an interest into when, when I was very young, I would say under the age of 10, we were camping and at the local campground as one of the kids activities, they were showing actually the, um, some Bigfoot films and the Patterson Gimlin film was one of the clips that they were showing. And of course, to a kid under 10, this is like, oh my God, that's out in the woods. And so imagine being afraid to, you know, to go out of your camper, you know, ever because this big hairy creature's in the wood and it's going to grab you. And so from that, I, I just kind of spurred an interest and um, wanted to learn all I could about Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, um, Atlantis, ghosts, um, UFOs, all, you know, everything that I found fascinating and and of the paranormal, you know, field, uh, it just, you know, became a, a interest of mine. And I started to 
read as much as I could about it. So where did you find material that you felt was, you know, uh, at least um, a- a- accurate, um, a research, something authoritative uh, on these different kinds of crippets? Uh, Local library was great because they had different books that uh, had been written that were, they, they were kind of like a broad spectrum of um, like mythological beasts or the supernatural or stuff like that. Um, there was a really nice Time Life series that uh, went like book by book on different, you know, creatures and mystical things. And oh, yeah, I remember so that, that series. Yeah, I remember that. You remember that? Yep. Yep. Um, so uh, that was one. And then um, because I had such an interest in it, my mom had gotten me um, a subscription to Fate Magazine, which back then, Fate Magazine was kind of like the the who's all, you know, of what was going on in the paranormal world and the different reports and sightings and stuff like that. Okay, I do remember hearing of that magazine as well. All right. Um, well, long well, time. Yeah, my, my, my thing is... One, if they were doing that to you at age 10 at that campground, I'm pretty sure it was their way of saying, this is the way to keep you in the campground. You don't go exploring and get lost. And two, when you listed everything that you were talking about that you just, you know, you fell down that rabbit hole, it reminds me of the list that Annie Potts gave uh, Ernie Hudson in Ghostbusters. And he replied, lady, if there's a paycheck, I'll I'll believe in anything. Uh, (laughs) So, so cryptozoology for just the layman who, you know, they may be listening, you know, longtime listeners and they may not necessarily be going the route of a game that would have cryptozoology. Could you give a definition? Basically, cryptozoology is the search for hidden beasts or things that are animals, creatures that are misplaced or not where you normally would find them. Um, For instance, a real-life situation would be somebody seeing a tiger or a black panther running across their backyard here in Michigan. Black panthers and tigers are not native to Michigan. Um, But if somebody has one that gets loose and it becomes accustomed to, to thriving here in Michigan, living, hunting, whatever, that suddenly becomes a cryptid because it's out of place. It's not something that you would normally find here in Michigan, but people are having sightings. Um, and that applies to Bigfoots, uh, Dogman, Mothman, all these interesting humanoid creatures that people are seeing. And uh, there's there's actually quite a broad spectrum. There's like monsters, there's UFOs, there's the Nain Rouge, there's, there's lots of cool things. So basically, cryptozoology is at its, at its most basic, broad definition, it's the search for hidden beasts. Okay, I have it here on Wikipedia. It was originally founded in the 50s by zoologists Bernard Heuvelmans and Ivan T. Sanderson. They, let's see, Heuvelmans was Bel- from Belgium, Sanderson was Scottish. And Heuvelmans published On the Track of Unknown Animals in 1955. And let's see, Sanderson published a series of books that assist in developing hallmarks of cryptozoology, including Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life in 1961. I take it that these were books that once you found them, you just said, okay, this is the start. Let's see where we go from here. Were those two of your early books that you... Uh, probably so. That, I, it was a long time ago, but I do remember reading about 
um, the Abominable Snowman and the Loch Ness, and because those were two of the biggies at the time, oh, yeah. um, along with Bigfoot, and so those were those were your uh, your breaking in points for like cryptozoology is um, Bigfoot and Loch Ness and the Abominable Snowman because there had been so much research done into them already. People just you know they they gear towards one of those and and then it kind of opens up the field to you. Oh yeah, because I'm and and from what I understand, and as you said, you're you're up here in Michigan. I'm I'm 15 minutes from Detroit Metro, so I mean we're both we both know of the ones like the Zug Island Monster, the Dog Men, the Nain Rouge. Uh, I'm trying to remember other Michigan ones here. Those are the three that come to mind right now, mainly because I've used them in games. Uh, we do have um, there is a lot of reports of Bigfoot. Here in Michigan, um, we've got lots of lake monster reports in the Great Lakes. There's a a report of melon heads up by like the Traverse City area. Okay, I've heard of them. Uh, yeah. Yep, and um, like the Paulding lights, UFOs. Uh, Michigan actually has has quite a diverse base of cryptids, um, depending on what you want to go out and find and what you want to research. Okay, uh, then we will use the the other end of this podcast. Uh, Georgia, what would be some uh, cryptids in that state that have made... Because I've heard there's cryptids in every state of the Union. Each state there, has there some are. some cryptid. There, there are. Each each state has kind of an interesting creature to it, or at least most states do. And down in Georgia area, uh, they have uh, a territory going from, like, Georgia, Louisiana into Florida, um, that's Skunk Ape territory. And that is, it's a Bigfoot, but it's a Bigfoot that has adapted itself to living in swampy areas. Well, so it's actually, it, it's, um, I would compare it to a an ape that has become like a sloth, where they, they are growing algae on their fur, and they have become very good at camouflaging themselves. Okay, um, yeah, I remember that one now. Yeah, I got it. They're called skunk apes because they develop this um, putrid, garbagey like skunk smell to them that for most creatures is a deterrent. When, when, you, when you come across something in the wild that smells really, really bad, generally you want to get away from it because if you get that scent on you, other creatures can find you easier. Yeah. Uh, and, and, a lot, and a lot of times they're dead, and you don't want to get yeah. that on either. Yeah, and usually, like, things that smell bad usually taste bad. So most most animals will not, or predators will not pursue something that smells that bad. I, I You know, up here in Michigan, we have lots of roadkill, and the one that you see that's not dragged off the road is the skunks. Right, yeah, the that butylmer captain, just nobody wants to get near it, yeah. Right, right. Okay, um... Now, as I said, uh, there was, I mean, there's a cryptozoologist, George M. Eberhardt, and he classified 10 types of mystery animals and also six exclusions from classification as a cryptid. As I said, I, I got Wikipedia up here, folks. I wanted to have some points here that we, the four of us could discuss. Uh, distribution anomalies, known anim animals outside their normal range. You just mentioned if a right. panther or a tiger happens to and a good example for michigan here is the wixom panther yeah yeah yes. i mean to the point where the high school team calls themselves the panthers and there is a business 
Panthers, I, I think it's like a tool and die shop, but Wixom has adopted that whole cryptid and it's become a part of their civic identity. Um, yep. Undescribed, unusual, or outsized variations of known species, the great anacondas from Amazonia or the spotted lions of East Africa. Survivals of recently extinct species, like the Tasmanian tiger, stellar sea cow. Survival of species known only from the fossil record in the modern times. And I'm going to mess up this name here. The Mokele Mbembe of Central Africa, or, yeah, Central Africa, sometimes described yeah, that, as a living dinosaur. It, what was it, that? It, it, it's described as like a brontosaurus um, in in the pictures that, that the natives have. Uh, when they're shown pictures of dinosaurs, that's one that they pick out as the Mokele Mbembe. Is, it looks like a long-necked dinosaur. Okay. Lingerlings are survival of species known from the fossil record much later in historical times and currently thought. The woolly mammoth, presumed extinct 12,000 BCE, but occasionally purported to have survived in later eras. Okay. Number well, six. Oh, what was that? They, they have proven that the last of the the uh, woolly mammoths, or mastodon, or I think they're, they're, they're separate. Yeah. Uh, mastodon and woolly mammoths. The last of them died out as the pyramids in the great um, in Great uh, Egypt have been were being built. So that was actually only maybe five six thousand years ago then. About ten thousand years ago, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ten to thousand years ago. Yeah. Uh, number six: animals not known from the fossil record but related to known species. The Andean wolf or the striped manta ray, reported by William Beebe in the 1930s. Okay, I don't understand that one. What is that? Animals not known from the fossil record, but related known species. Um, let's see, Andean wolf. A pelt was found in 1927, and it claimed so, it. Yeah. And it, so it's a wolf that was supposedly seen in the Andes, but they've never found any bones or anything to identify it as actually being there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, let's see, 27, Lorenz Hagenbeck brought one of three pelts from a de dealer in Buenos Aires who claimed it came uh, from a wolf. That would, to me, you guys are cutting in. A, um, that that would be um, a, a classic description of a cryptid beast of something that we found very little remains of, but either native or local people have you know have descriptions of it and tellings of it. Okay, uh, number seven: animals not known from the fossil record or related to any known species. Bigfoot or most sea serpents. Uh, yes. Number eight, mythical animals with a zoological basis. Number nine, seemingly paranormal or supernatural entities with some animal-like characteristics. Mothman, black dog, some fairies from folklore. And, well... Werewolves, yep. <laughs> yeah, number ten, known hoaxes or probable misidentifications. The jackalope and antlered rabbit, a popular popular hoax in taxidermy. Yeah. Not the jackalope. Yep, yeah. Look at the bones! Anyways, um... And Eberhardt also argued for six exclusions from classification as a cryptid. Insignificance. Cryptids must be big, weird, dangerous, or significant to humans in some way, was the quote that they put as an example. Lack of controversy. Erratics, like the out-of-place alligator that turns up in an odd spot, undoubtedly through human agency, is not a zoological mystery. Like somebody picks up an alligator and drives it to a different city or something. Uh, bizarre humans, like zombies and vampires. Angels or demons. And... I won't do the, the hand gesture like the guy with the weird hair does, but aliens. Um, unlike some extraterrestrials arrived a long time ago and thus classify as residents. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking they get a passport or something. Um, so yeah, George Eberhardt put those out as 
the criteria of what does and does generally become accepted as a cryptid. Now, Eberhardt, I'm not seeing exactly what, how long he had been doing this. Uh, how many, uh, another one, the Chupacabra down in Central and South America. I want to say it, it's the goat eater, I think it, that's what that's called. It's right. the, uh, the blood sucker. Okay, um, yeah. Yeah. With, with cryptozoology, you also have a lot of folklore, a lot of legend, a lot of local stories. And so with the Chupacabra, it's, if there were, if, we're the, because it's mostly the Latin people who come into um, Texas, Florida, um, those areas that bring this information with them. Oh, this is this is a creature that we had where I used to live in Mexico and South America and Central America, um, and this is what it did, and this is you know the remains that we found, and that's how we know it was a chupacabra. And I'm seeing you know this happening in my neighborhood so there must be a chupacabra here when it could be anything it could be you know the the local stray dog is having a feast of chicken it could be somebody doing some type of um religious ritual it could be just somebody who has really messed up you know mentalities of you know this is fun to torture animals you know it's it's a lot of it you unless you catch it happening and you, and you see firsthand what's causing it, um, a lot of times it falls back to the, the local legends and superstitions and stuff like that. So with Chupacabra, people, um, I know that there, there was a report of somebody caught one down in, I think, Arizona, Texas area. But most likely it was a coyote with mange. Oh, gee. Um, okay, let me ask it because we have a lot of these legends come from centuries ago. Yeah. Has there been a recent influx of cryptids being uh, discovered or found out about? Or is it just that it's just we're trying to dig up more information on these older legends and folklore and whatnot? Because I'm, I'm wondering, are there any new ones that have come out that may have come into the field recently that you and your contemporaries have all of a sudden latched onto because like, oh, we've never heard of this one before, and you just go down that rabbit hole. Um, I would say the, the newest ones would be like the Dogman reports and some, um, there, there have been reports of the Mothman being seen in the Chicago area. Now, whether it's the same creature that was spotted in West Virginia, I'm not certain. Um, I actually think that the creature that was spotted in West Virginia and that people were, sort of, were reporting seeing, um, I have a theory that I'm developing upon that, um, that it, it, is, it was a physical manifestation of people's fears and their negative energy. Okay. And so there, there's a, in science and in the metaphysical world, there's the strong belief that thoughts become form. And in West Virginia, there was actually very old um, legend of a curse that was put on the air, the local lands by Chief Cornstock. And people knew about it. And it was passed along from generation to generation. And so 
when you're in these rural areas, people tend to stick, you know, with, with these, you know, beliefs that there's something out there in the woods. So the more that you feed your energy and your fear into this thing, the more likely it is to become. And I think that a lot of times what people were seeing it was the manifestation of their fears. Okay, um, and I know that many of these come from different legends. I, matter of fact, I use the, I'm running a Bureau 13 game currently, a modern day, and I brought up the Jersey Devil. Now, oh, yeah. Now, I've heard that there were two or three stories based on that, that there was a child who was born, and it was, it was a, I think the child died, and so there was a curse. Or... Uh, the, the legend of the Jersey Devil... Uh, is that Mother Leeds had already had, I think it was six or seven kids. Yeah. And she's pregnant again. And when this baby was born, she she was just so, like, done with giving birth to, to kids that she said, let it be the devil. And... Legend has that the midwife who was delivering said that the baby immediately went from a baby's form to this demonic creature and it escaped out of the house and into the woods and it has haunted um, the um, area since then. And people people still have a re, you know reports of it, um, but it's it's. It's what I call an amalgamation creature, where it has like the head of a horse, chimeric, yeah, um, yeah, the wings of a dragon, um, the body of of I think a deer, and it has all these interesting um, features that you're not necessarily going to find actually, you know, naturally occurring in nature. Yeah, bio um, biologically, these features cannot be together. Yeah, the, the only the only creature that I will say that defies explanation of how it got all these different parts is the platypus because it's got a duck's, you know, bill. It's a mammal, but it's aquatic. It's actually uh, got poisonous claws on it, and it lays eggs. Yeah, or, or for those who, or, or another way to say it, just had God had a really weird sense of humor that day. Um, I have all these leftover parts. Let's put them together. Yeah. Now... As I said, every state in the Union has some story of some creature due to legend and folklore that's there. We've already discussed a few states that have them, and a lot of them spread across states. Now, bringing it into the concept of a role-playing game, it would take... Re because I have the Pathfinder bestiaries, and when I read for preparing for this adventure I ran last Saturday, reading the things of the Jersey Devil, and I look at the, you know, the drawings from like 1850-whatever, and I go, that looks like a paraton. And of course, I have stats for it, so I just use that. Now, I'm sure because a lot of these monster manuals and bestiaries, they're drawing from local folklore just to throw them in the game, and it's for a, most likely a fantasy-based game, you know, the pseudo-medieval society. But... Uh, Bruce and I both run a game called Bureau 13, which it's modern-day monster hunters, secret government agency designed to hide the supernatural and combat it if necessary. So, so kind of like, like the current season of Legends of Tomorrow where they're hunting 
uh, magical beasts that are showing up in the timeline. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I've, I really fell behind on that series. I've seen a couple episodes. I just dropped out of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so would you happen to have any good resources to suggest? Because a, a good game master is going to research the subject because you mm-hmm. want the verisimilitude and as the case with my gaming group, you're always going to have that one person who's going to catch you. Just be like, no, that's not how it is. And just, you're looking at them like, shut up. What would be... <laughs> Bruce knows my pain, yes. Um, <laughs> because he's been doing this longer than I have. Uh, what would be some good resources for someone studying cryptozoology to add it to a role-playing game? Could you suggest various types of media, books, you know, shows, whatever that would be a good start to get somebody into this subject. Yes. Um, well, for, for um, like TV series, um, they don't broadcast it all the time, but on the Travel Channel, Animal Channel, uh, Destination America, you will occasionally see um, Monsters and Mysteries of America. And they, depending on which ver- version of the show that you're watching, they go state by state or creature by creature and they give a background history of it and a description of it and they, you know, explain what the sighting was or how it interacted with the person and what the person's experience was. So that Monsters and Mysteries of America is a really good one. On the Science Channel, they have had since, I believe, the beginning of October... They have had a really cool series on called Mythical Beasts. And each week they are um, doing a scientific discussion on the history, the cultural background of different creatures. I believe next week's is werewolves. This past week was like demons. And they, you know, just the different um, ideas and thoughts behind culturally, scientifically how this creature manifested and the belief behind it manifested. So those those two shows um, are pretty on spot with giving you information and ideas about what creatures are out there. Um, there's a really excellent um, cryptozoologist author, uh, Lauren Coleman, who has written a huge series of books on um, different... He's written one on all lake monsters, on um, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Yeti, um, basically what I would call upright um, bipedal um, humanoid that are of the ape-type category. Dogman is a different category. Um, So it just, even if you just type in um, or Google or even go to your library and type in cryptozoology, it will give you a lot of books to pick from. And... You just have to look through and see because people do, you know, different amounts of research. Um, when, when you're actually writing a book, it, it's you kind of have to contain yourself because otherwise you will spend five years researching things and adding notes, you know, here and there. And then you come up with a, you know, a, a 5,000, you know, page book with all different drawings and stuff like that. Uh, so it's, it's, it's when you're when you're starting to research cryptozoology, you kind of have to head yourself in one direction and kind of put on on you know on your focus so that you you're not getting sidetracked of okay, well 
you know, today I'm I'm writing a book um, on uh, Mothman and flying creatures of the Midwest, and I'm really interested in researching like the pterodactyls and uh, pterodons, and then all of a sudden I'm finding terror birds, and okay, let's research that, and then you know a week goes by, and I'm like, I have 50 you know note cards on on flying reptiles. Okay, because of the various type, I'm I'm here on the elliptic list of cryptids on wikipedia and they'd have one they've got let me get back up to the top aquatic and semi-aquatic terrestrial yep and even plants i mean they've got uh in africa and central america man-eating trees the madagascar tree the nubian tree the yatevio and the vampire vine these are carnivorous plants so those are even counted as cryptids and i'm like that, that's a heck of a thing you get to the after like what happened to you i was eaten by a tree <laughs> like wow that's a poor life choice of where you were on the food chain pal um yeah i mean it, it would be like having a giant venus flytrap or um the the plant from little shop of horror oh, Seymour. Yeah. Um, you know Okay, uh, because I'm just looking, and yeah, a lot of these names I've seen either, you know, just from my own geeky pursuits or research as a game master, and I'm just seeing other things here. I'm like, where did this come from? Like, the Wolpertinger in Germany, and it's pretty much, it looks like a winged Jap globe. It is a rabbit with fangs, antlers, and it looks like it has wings on its back. And it, that's what it's called, folks, the Wolper, Wolpertinger, and mm -hmm. they have a Latin... Uh, Chrysensis bavaricus, I believe is how they said it in Latin here, yeah. So we did mention the jackalope earlier, but apparently they decided, oh, let's throw some wings on it, too. Not only will it make it hop far, but it's going to fly. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are some really interesting things out there. Um, there's a Chinese water um, deer, which is, it's a, it's a small, you know, dog-sized deer, but it has fangs. And people have seen it, and of course you don't know what this thing is, and so it becomes the stuff of legend. I believe in Ireland, Scotland, the the deer up there are actually known for catching birds and eating them. And I've actually seen video of the the deer are just kind of moseying through the field, and they walk up to a a flock of birds that are you know on the ground just looking for worms or you know seed or stuff. And they stomp on the on the bird and they eat it. So, carnivorous you know, deer. Yes, yes, and it, and it happens. Um, I've also I've also heard of them going after rabbits, and it's it's a protein source. And if the deer needs it, then you know they will hunt. And a lot of people are like, "That's just creepy." And well, if it if it has to find a way to exist, it will find a way to exist. Well, yeah, that that's just adapting to an ecosystem. But Shatan, you and I are familiar with the hunting season, deer hunting season up here in Michigan. It's pretty much known yeah. that deer are herbivorous creatures. They eat plants, and all of a sudden, just hearing that a deer is eating meat, even those of us native to this state, we're like, wait, no, stop. We we know things like, and I'm sure you've heard this if you've had venison, that in the northern part of the Lower Peninsula, the deer eat pine cones. In the southern half of the Lower Peninsula, they tend to eat corn out of the fields, and you can taste the difference in the meat because the, the corn-fed deer, the meat's a little sweeter. And there's just a different taste when they eat the pine cones. 
I don't want to know. It's like, this deer tastes meatier than usual. Wait a minute, it ate what? <laughs> you know. So, yeah, just it, it, hearing that, I'm like, no, no. I don't. <laughs> I If I see one of them, I want a gun. A uh, jackalope. Here we go. North America. Herbi- here we go. Herbivorous mammal. Yeah, and this one doesn't have antlers, though. Just, they, they put a picture of a rabbit up. Come on, Wikipedia. Work a little harder. Um, oh, no, as I said, I'm seeing a bunch of these that, yeah, I've seen things like this for years, and then I see other ones like, as I said, these are some names that our listeners may not know about, like the the Beast of Bladenboro in North Carolina, blood-sucking feline-like predator. And they got the two guys are holding this. This cat looks to be about the size of a jaguar. I mean, they're holding up where it's standing up on its hind legs, like one guy each has a front paw. But still, it's just like, it looks like a, a spotted leopard. Now, you have to take into, into account that, well, like when I'm researching cryptid reports, there there is a timestamp, which I call the P.T. Barnum timestamp. So anything before P.T. Barnum, I actually consider a accurate historical account. Gotcha. Because before that point, people, if they reported something... It was because they had no understanding of what it was. They were afraid of it. It was truly terrifying to them. They were not looking to get any recognition, any profit from it. They were just like, oh, sh-, you know, what is this yeah. that I just saw? <laughs> and I want, you know, people to come hunt it down, kill it. Now, after P.T. Barnum, after the, the circus carnival era started, then you get your hoaxers, who are people who, um, a, a huge example of this is in Rylander, Wisconsin, with the hog dad, which is a, uh, a hoax. The, the gentleman created this creature and put it on display and charged a profit, charged um, admission to see it. And then after a little while, after the thing, of course, probably started smelling then admitted it was a hoax. But the thing about it is, Rylander is still known for this mythological fabricated creature, and they they have come to own it. Um, I was just there about a month ago and was driving around the town, and they have statues out front. They have stores that you know sell uh, memorabilia. The the Welcome Center has a huge statue out in front of it, which is really cool. Um, and they will give you like a map of the, the town that has all the different statues and stores that, you know, that sell goods about it. And they have come to embrace um, this creature. But it it, start, it, it started as a, a way to make money. Yeah. And so for me, um, that timestamp of P.T. Barnum, I, I take that into account when I'm doing research and anything that's more modern I have to look into, okay, did this actually happen? Or are the people putting on a hoax? Shatan, Shatan, one word, Photoshop. (laughs) It's like, you're just like, wait a minute. (laughs) But then you have things like like people who poach, and they they don't want to get caught poaching, so they... They say, oh, well, I wasn't shooting at a bear. I was shooting at Bigfoot. And then, of course, you, you know, read these so- recent articles where lions eat the person, you know, and it's just like, yeah, you you were poaching, yeah. Um, so with you you have this system of, and I'm sure it's APT and, 
or BPT and APT, before PT and after PT, kind of like AD and BCE. Uh, yeah. Well, it's a good dating system. I mean, it, it's a very, that is a very good system to figure out how to go about, you know, if it's worth the search, if it's worth the research, because you know if it's after PT Barnum, you're, I'm sure that your inner red flags start popping up and going, okay, this one, I'm, I'm going to be far more skeptical than something before him. Uh, right. The, the phrase, the sucker's born every minute, folks. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, like, it was the greatest... Uh, excuse me? Uh, like, going back to Wisconsin, um, back when Lake Monsters became a a more popular tourist attraction, every few months, a new Lake Monster popped up in a lake, you know, so it would start out in one lake, and then, you know, reports would die down, and the tourist dollars would die down, and then suddenly, two months later, in a town 30 miles away, oh, it's here, it's, you know, it's in our lake, we have reports, so people would flock there, because the idea of being able to see something that you've never seen before was very appealing to people, you know, in the 1800s, where that's, you know, that's why the circuses were so popular, because they were bringing in exotic animals and exotic people that at your average farmer townsperson might, if they were educated enough, they might read about it in a newspaper or a book, but to see it in real life, I mean, a bearded lady, wow. An acrobat who can fly through the air, a yeah. lion, yeah. You know, uh, elephants, those were very, you know, that was really exciting. When the circus came to town, that was that was the, the the monument of the summer. I mean, it was just like, wow, the circus is here. It was a very big production. So with, and, and, and you know, very shrewd, very smart people caught on to, huh, if I claim that there's a giant 50-foot, you know, sea monster or lake monster or river monster in our town, then people, and I, and I you know, I take a photograph or, you know, I come up with a really good report or, Hey, that that hog over there is is you know looking like it's ready to be slaughtered anyway. So I'll slaughter it, but I'll put some remains down by the the lake you know shore, and then you know I have evidence that this creature was here. I'll fake some footprints, have the local reporter come out, and suddenly we've got a lake monster. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, trying to see what other things. And, of course, we have a... Uh, okay, and I'm sure you've probably heard of these organizations, too, in your research. And two of them have the name of... I don't want to say his first name, Thomas Fort. Uh, you have the Center for Fortean Zoology in the U.K. and the International Fortean Organization here in the U.S. The International yep. Society of Cryptozoology from 82 to 98. And Cosmopoisk a Russian organization whose interests include cryptozoology and ufology. And I say I think his first name was Thomas Fort, the man who from which Fortean zoology came from. I'm trying to remember his first name and I want to say it is Thomas, but he was okay. yeah. Yeah, I've heard of the first two, but the Russian one I had not heard of. But in in Russia they do have um I believe it's called the Yerin. Yeah, Yerin that is in Russia, and it um, with, with the Sasquatch and the Bigfoots, it's not just one breed of them. Like, you know, somebody might say, well, I have a dog, or I saw a dog. Well, what kind of dog was it? What breed? The same thing is, you know, with the Bigfoots and the Sasquatch. There's, there's several different ones. 
And the, the one, one that, that you, you find, find in Russia, Russia is um, has a little bit, you know, different body structure, a little bit different color coat, and it behaves a little bit differently. And so they they have a lot of reports in in Russia, um, and the um, Siberia, that whole area of these gigantic bipedal, you know, apes that are walking around and they uh, they have a um, a whole you know research team over there of that they actually have they actually have a a group that meets I believe it's at the local it's at their local museum and they they meet you know quite regularly to discuss findings and um, what they're you know what their sightings, you know, reports are. Yeah, because, I mean, I got to remember also with Russia until the 90s where you had Glasnost and Perestroika, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev opening up the Soviet Union as it was dissolving to the rest of the world. I'm sure that you as a, as a longtime cryptozoologist all of a sudden just noticed all these reports of all these old legends that, you know, had been hidden just because of how closed that part of the world was to the rest of the world. I'm sure you got flooded with all sorts of new cryptids, just, oh, what's this and this and this, and because of how tight-lipped they were over there. That's And a lot of things are past. Story, storytelling is a, a time-honored tradition of passing information from one generation to the next. So you might have a very rural town that had several hundred years ago, they had an incident that the locals have no explanation for, you know, what this creature was. And they only glimpsed it, you know, briefly or they had encounters with it. And then, it, you know, it probably moved on to a different area, but they will pass that story on to the next person and... And to that, that you know, next that, generation coming that, up, you know, next that, that creature is still out there in the woods. It's still waiting, you know, it's to pick one of them waiting, off or to grab. Know? So they continue passing on the story, and you you get this long um, legend of a sighting that might have happened 500 years ago, but to this person that you're talking to, it happened like yesterday because their parent told them. And the grandparent told that parent, and so it's it's very um, it's still very fresh in their minds. Yeah, because I, I'm on the page for Cosmopoisk, also known as Space Search, started in 1980, expanded 2001 to international movement. 2004 it registered in the, the under the name All Russian Scientific Organization. Oh, we started uh, one of them started to research the Tunguska event in 1908, and then from there. That's what got them going on cryptozoology and all these other things. Now, mm-hmm. as far as, as I said, we're, we're trying to link how to use cryptozoology in plotting a role-playing game. Now, you already mentioned certain things to research. Okay, well, why don't we talk about, you know, how you, where these things could come from, okay? I mean, obviously, you're in, in, mo- in real life, cryptozoology, we're trying to say that these are natural creatures that have somehow managed to remain hidden or they're in obscure, um, you know, hard-to-get areas where they can live. So 
But in a story, in a role-playing game, you have a lot more options available to you than you would have otherwise. Uh, for example, uh, you could have um, time slip. This could be something that was a precursor version of something, uh, uh, possibly a Neanderthal. If you talk about the dog-faced boy, uh, though I'm told that they actually don't look like that, um, you could have uh, uh, some of the more uh, exotic-looking uh, uh, deer. Uh, of course, you know the saber-toothed tiger and whatever it turned into, as far as this uh, associated family line. Uh, those things were in uh, in North America, uh, and with a time slip, you could suddenly have one here. There's nothing uh, in our uh, in our science that says that such things are possible. Oh yeah, the the fossil record is just fascinating. Um, just the way that nature evolved different creatures to fit their surroundings, you can find. Uh, the if you're looking for you know uh, anything monster wise that you wouldn't you know that your game players would not encounter in everyday life, you you don't have to look any further than the fossil record because there is such a huge variety of just different dinosaurs and prehistoric creatures. It, it's just awe inspiring. Like with the pterodactyls, there's over 150 different pterosaurs that they have documented. And they're still, every day, they are finding new species. So the fossil record itself is just so immense, so vast, that you can, you can kind of you know, cherry pick what you want your, your players to um, counter. And then for, for pulling them into like a game... It's, it's not, not that, that you, know, you know when when, when you're in role playing when you're, um, you're into the character. It's not that much of a stretch of the imagination. You have an evil character who opened up a porthole and pulled in. You know they they left this you know opening in in space and time open, and all these creatures come wandering in, and now suddenly you have, like if you opened up on a dinosaur trackway or something like that, there were so many different creatures that, you know, would come along these paths. You have anything from your 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 meat-eating predatory dinosaurs to your um, your herbivores, stegosaurus, you know, duckbills, triceratops, even into the different um, prehistoric mammals. There, There's just so much that you could throw at people. It's like, Okay, you know, not only did they open up a, a doorway into this time period, but they did, you know, these three other ones. And now, you you know, it's Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park, you know, uh, you know, Silurian Park. Oh, um, right. That's great. And, and, and you don't even have to do something exotic as a time portal. Uh, lots and lots of movies have been done where they were simply frozen, you know, from, from the Ice Age uh, and... You know, some of the mammoths, you know, they were found in ice. Uh, there was a movie called Caveman where the sky was thawed out of the ice. And so you could certainly do that with uh, some of these cryptids. Or somebody gets a treasure map and this treasure map, you know, um, is a plot, you know, device where it leads them into this mountain. And they, you know, through their own actions, they open up a, a you know... Um, what was a closed-off environment, 
and suddenly you have all these species that were contained within this mountain or this, you know, cavernous um, setting. Suddenly these species are, are loose, you know, and, and the players have to deal with them. So I mean, there's so much you could, you know, there you, you don't even have to look at like mythical beasts or crypto, you know, cryptid beasts when you're talking about the fossil record because everything you could ever want is there. But when you want to get more exotic, it's like, oh, well, you know, instead of a pterodactyl, here, deal with the dragon. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, uh, that brings up another possibility, especially that's, that's true today. I mean, genetic engineering. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, you, know, you get some wonder kind off somewhere and starts creating chimeras. Or hybrids. I mean, that that is going on today where... People are breeding hybrids. They're creating, you know, hybrids. A, a stronger, better version, uh, you know, that, well, they think it's a stronger, better version, but is it really? Wolf hybrids are, they're pretty to look at. Some of them, depending on what percentage of wolf you have in them, they, they can make good pets. But I know for a long time, sled dog people were breeding the wolf gene, you know, the wolves in. Because a wolf, can travel 40 miles per day, no problem. That would be great in a sled dog unless you, you know, get the the wolf mentality, and that is, oh, we're supposed to be running down this path, but I see a deer over there. I think my pack should go challenge it. And so now you have one dog in a series of 20 that is going off and tangling the whole group. Yeah. So that doesn't necessarily benefits you at all um people who decide the liger was a wonderful idea oh yes yes reading lions and tigers together to create these more majestic creatures well the problem with that is genetically diverse but the problem with that is most of them are sterile well it's like when you breed a donkey and a mule that that same thing the result is a sterile creature um donkey and a horse donkey and a horse thank you yeah that's how you get the mule Okay. Oh, what was it? You're just talking about uh, portals bringing creatures in. I'm I'm thinking of Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yes. And uh, it was a British series, uh, Primeval. I think they were fighting, oh. like, modern-day people fighting dinosaurs. Right. Yeah. That, that, that was a time slip. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, you know, if you really want to uh, join your mythologies together, aliens did it. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Because humans obviously couldn't build the 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 pyramid themselves, you know, using their human intelligence and ingenuity. Aliens had to help us. Well, but also if you if, okay, you know, we live, you know, we're part of an ecosystem, okay, and so therefore, you know, uh, there's lots of animals that are not human, but they eat the same sort of thing that we do and 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 live in a lot of the same kind of environments that we can live in and so aliens are probably the same way so if they want to find out whether the ecosystem is going to gobble them up alive or they can coexist and maybe this plan is worth taking over with a massive um uh, re-engineering project you take a whole bunch of you know you'll say you're stronger more durable animals you know possibly predatory and you just seed them around and all of a sudden you know you've got you know you know big snake-headed monsters you know that are running around apparently out of nowhere but it was actually aliens that dropped them off just to see how well they do and if they do well then of course the aliens know 
that they could live here too. Well, I mean, that's kind mm-hmm. of a bad thing. Remember when all the people went to Australia originally and they, I think they, oh, what animal? I want to say they brought pigs to Australia and just the pigs were eating all the other like snakes and everything and it really caused a problem with the ecosystem. So that's not always a good idea. Uh, well, originally yeah. it, it was, it was, uh, it was rabbits and they ate everything. Okay. So yeah. cane toads and, so they so they introduced wolves, right? <laughs> and then we had the explosion of wolves. Humans, we 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 have such great ideas about fixing things. Yeah, the term poor life choice. Yeah, we don't job. Yeah, and then you got that one scientist who put two uh, two northern perch into Lake Victoria and totally destroyed the ecosystem. Oh. Well, and that's actually happening right now in the Great Lakes and. In the Mississippi River, we have an infestation of the Asian carp, and oh, if yeah. they get in, if they get into the Great Lakes, then it's going to cause a huge problem with the fishing and the um, fishermen who do like sport fishing and stuff like that. Because these Asian carp, they're vegetarian, but what they do is they go through and they strip mine all of the plant life. And suddenly your your bass, your salmon, your trout, all these, you know, fish that everybody wants to fish for, suddenly the 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 fry and the minnows and they don't have anything to eat. They don't have anything to live on. And so they are and they, they don't have anything to hide in. So suddenly they are very um, vulnerable to all the other predators. So these, if these Asian carp actually get into the Great Lakes, you're looking at a, a horrible failure on on humans. <laughs> you know, it's like oh, they need to put a bounty on them. Then yeah, bounty so seems to work saying, well. So what you're saying is that the Asian carp is the uh, the sheep of the fish world. <laughs> I don't know if y'all know that the sheep they they pull the entire thing of the grass out and so like goat farmers hate sheep farmers because of that yeah because <laughs> cattle farmers don't like them very much either yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure okay so uh, let's say so you, you you can like mix your your mythologies there with the aliens you know because that way they can bring in really exotic stuff that you know might be perfectly normal have been the result of millions of years of evolution on their planet, but to us, it's like, wow, did this thing come from? You know, and and all they all they did was they just dropped it off because either you know, and 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 their stories, you know, a couple of movies I remember one time where the guy goes walking out and he just sees this tiger walking by, you know, and it's like, this is like a small English town or something like that. And he's just like. What the heck? And then there's elephants, and there's a whole, you know, where, where there's normally a whole bunch of birds, there's a whole bunch of monkeys sitting there. And and, and what is a train, you know, derailed outside the town, okay? But for the, for the people who woke up that morning, it was surreal because they were suddenly surrounded by all these truly exotic animals, had no place in their local ecosystem, but there they were. And what are they going to do about it? You know, because believe me, you know, if you're, if you're out there, you know, with your... A walking stick you really don't want to tangle with the tiger right and but then there's also like the butterfly effect of okay what if you have people who in the future it's it's a like like their their version of a um, amusement park you know right but to go back in time and observe like an event happening and 
they go back in time and somebody just can't, you know, play by the rules and they decide they're going to bring, bring back um, this flower that they saw or this bird or this insect. And because it's from, you know, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, millions of years ago, they introduce it into their timeline and it changes the whole timeline. Because now that species is relevant and alive in a, a time and date when it should have been extinct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Think Star about Trek. that. Yep. Star Trek um, 4. Yeah. Yeah, like well, start well, like time rips or time quakes, where you do something that causes a uh, uh, some kind of a time catastrophe, and what happens is is that things from all these different times just get peppered through the other time streams, you know, in the other places in time, because you know the system itself has been thrown into a tizzy, and and it's just trying to find the you know equilibrium again but in the meantime all kinds of stuff are being shuffled around along the timeline and you end up again with a lot of exotic stuff and maybe everyone thinks it's normal but maybe it isn't maybe they don't maybe they didn't realize it was suddenly going to appear and so it isn't in their history because it just got basically popped into their timeline without any pre-existence or at least for millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years so yeah, you know, time disasters of that kind, you know, can also do stuff like that where, you know, you don't know what you're going to see next. The future, things from the future could also, by the way, be dropped back into the past. So mm-hmm. you have all kinds of really weird artifacts. It gets to be a really interesting time when, you know, you got people running around with uh, futuristic artifacts being chased by uh, uh, pterodons and, uh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> riding saber tooth tigers. Yeah, like even if it was intentional, like a, a group of scientists came back in time because in the future they discovered that this one species of plant or animal was resistant to this type of cancer, which is overtaking the human population in the future. So they come back, they get, you know, several samples of it and they take it into the future, but. And so doing, they have left something behind, but they've brought something to the future. So that switches the timeline. So you could, you know, you might very well have you, this group of scientists comes back to, you know, what would be their present day and suddenly realizes, okay, human beings are, are walking squid, you know, <laughs> they're, or, you know, they're, they, uh, they're reptilian. Uh, what happened to the human race? Oh, it's because we did this. Assuming, of course, they're even aware of it. There's a great story where they decide to go and, and make changes to the past. And everyone's saying, well, yeah, but it'll be really bad. And it could do all kinds of terrible things. And, and then they, they do it, and it, and it keeps and, – and all these time waves wash over them. And every time it does, they change. And, and, and this happens, and that happens. And finally, at the end, they start off looking like humans. At the end, they're like pseudopods and, and, and purplish, you know, triple eyes. And they come around, and they, and they say – and the scientists around trampoline says, you see, nothing has changed. Right, right. <laughs> Who who knows? How would how would you know if you change your own timeline? Yeah. That would that would be an interesting game right there of how do you stop the scientists from doing it? And you know, so they would have to almost like Groundhog Day, you know, how many times do we have to do this until we get it right so that we completely stop them from going back and changing things, but at the same time not screwing up what's going on, you know, in present day. 
Right. Now, when you have a game that's, that's basically oriented toward the supernatural, you have even more options, okay? Because, first of all, you're, you, you, these creatures could be literally coming from another plane of existence uh, that's linked to our own. Some of the uh, uh, beasts of the gods, for example, they, you know, they're, they're suddenly appearing. There could be uh, a brigadoon where there could be a whole section, a whole valley that just basically doesn't appear once every 20 years. So uh, it's been kept safe. And, and also because it's, it's leapfrogging through time, you know, every 20 years, it's for it, you know, it's, it's, it's 120th the amount of time has passed for it. So 100,000 years is now only like 500 or, or 5,000 years. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's hard. You know, things might have majorly changed in the surrounding world, but for it, that the things of that valley, not much has changed at all. So there's a lot. You know, so when you have, uh, and of course, magic. Of course, you can take any anything and stick it with anything. You don't have to worry about the biology because the magic fixes it because it's magic. Right. Yeah. So you can get all kinds of really weird cryptids because some of your cryptids I, I thought were really bizarro, like the uh, uh, bunyip. Uh, it has so many different descriptions for it. One being a giant starfish. Uh, you know, others, it's got, you know, it's, 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 it's more like an animal with the face of a dog. And others are, it has a whole variety of things. You know, mostly, the only thing that seems to hold true is it seems to, you know, lay in water and uh, prey on people who come near it. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.